0: I want you to see this in Acts chapter 17. Um, I believe with all of my heart that God is able to go beyond what we are in ourselves capable of doing. God goes beyond what our natural abilities and even our spiritual giftedness will be. God works beyond that. When we sing, when we preach, when we teach, when we share the gospel, God is able to take what we do And just like He took the loaves and fish and did more than its molecular structure was capable of doing, the nutrients in that bread and fish was sufficient for one. And God took it, Jesus took it, and multiplied it and fed the multitude. God is able to take the limited things that we can do and use them in an unlimited fashion. And I want you to see some truths about this this morning in Acts chapter 17. When they had passed, the Bible says, through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Now, those of you who have been in Sunday school, you know that this was Paul's standard operating procedure. This was what he did. Because he was Jewish, he could go in to where there was a, a city that had enough people to have a synagogue. And on the synagogue in the synagogue they would read the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the Old Testament scriptures well. And Paul his first step would be to go in as a visiting rabbi. He would be invited up to speak after the scripture had been read and he would expound and he as we see here he would speak from those Old Testament scriptures and he would show how Jesus was the Christ. That was what he did. He had a ready-made audience to hear a message that they already knew much. When he said God, they knew who he was talking about. When he said Christ, they knew that meant the Messiah. They had an understanding. They were ready to hear. And so he would go in and he preached. And for three weeks, he does this, opening and alleging, explaining and arguing that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews that believed not were moved with envy. They took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason has received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. They troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things, and when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. As I read this text, I'm reminded I was thinking this week, this week has been um, an election week, this week has been um, Veterans Day. And I think about the, the founding of our country. Think about the the blessedness that God has shown to our country and whatever, you know, we can have a great debate over the argument of is America a Christian country? America has certainly never been completely Christian. Even at our some of our better times, we still needed um, revival. We needed the great awakening. Uh, we need revival now. It certainly never meant that everybody in our country was a Christian. Uh, boy, that certainly has never been the case. Uh, it does mean that there are some principles that were taken from God's word in the founding of our country, but in that time, in that revolution, a time of revolutionary change, a time of change when instead of a an aristocracy and a monarchy, we now have uh, a republic and we have elected officials. And of course, we could argue about where that has gone and what has taken place with that. But I'm reminded from this passage of a. Story that I heard, first heard in Yorktown, Virginia, when I was probably about eight or nine years old as we were touring this with my family, and they told about the surrender of General Cornwallis at Yorktown when America won her independence, and we have, of course, the, the many veterans that served in that war and in subsequent wars, but they surrendered there at Yorktown. The tradition was is that the losing army's band would play a song um, from the other from the winning side as sort of a submission thing and sort of an acknowledgement that they won. General Washington would not allow that for some various reasons that I won't go into, but so the British band, as the, as the soldiers surrendered, um, the British band played a song that had been written during the time, about a century or more before, when the Puritans had ruled England. And the Parliament had sort of taken the authority from the king. And they wrote this song that is based on this text. The title of that song is, It's a World Turned Upside Down. When it was written, it was considered a revolutionary time that Parliament was taking authority over the king. And when they played it on the battlefield at Yorktown, they were saying, this is is turning the world upside down. Instead of the king being an authority, now the people are in authority. And a time of revolution. This time that this text is based in was not a time of political revolution, it was not a time of social revolution, but it was a time in which the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ was, revol- was turning the world upside down. I wanna point out to you that the disciples and the apostles did not go out with the intent of turning the world upside down. They simply went out with the intent of being obedient to the call and the commission of Christ, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was the power of the gospel that turned the world upside down. As we think about this, I think maybe it's important for us to start with how they did not go about this. Now, when I say these things, don't think that I'm saying that our engagement and involvement in these things is wrong. I simply say that we need to be very careful that we don't allow our engagement in these things to replace our engagement with the gospel and our proclamation of the gospel or give us undue hopes in what we'll accomplish. They did not set out, they did not try to begin a political revolution They did not have the opportunities. They did not have the liberties. They did not have the means to accomplish a political revolution. People say today, well, what would the early church have done? What would Jesus have done? Jesus didn't have the right to vote. And I hope every Christian went out this week and exercised their right to vote and did so according to their biblically guided, spirit-filled conscience. But Jesus did not have a vote. The disciples did not have a vote. We're among the very few in history... Uh, that Christians have had the religious opportunities or the political opportunities that we have. We are to be a good steward of them, but they did not set out to say, hey, let's have a political revolution. Let's overthrow Caesar. Now, they preached a message that was powerful and affected that, but that was not their intent. Their task was not social reclamation. Let's reclaim our culture for Christ. Let's get back to what it used to be. Let me tell you that, 50, 60, 70 years ago, our culture was very different than it is today, but it still had its own set of sins. I know that's not a popular thing to say, and that's why nobody said amen. So I'll say amen myself. Amen, that's good preaching. We don't want to admit that. We had our own set of sins years ago, and every generation thinks their generation was the best, and that the new generation is the one that's running things into the ground. I read an article from the 1890s one time where this lady wrote into the paper and was complaining because of the flour. She said, this culture is going to pot, this didn't say to pot, but this culture is going places that shouldn't go because the young women are using the wrong flour in making their biscuits. I want to say, what would you say now? But she was convinced that the new generation was doing things in a certain way, and that was what was wrong with America. So, look, social reclamation, we want to do everything we can to put our foot on the brake and keep our country from going in the direction that it's going in. But that was, not the, that was not what they went about. There was no culture to reclaim. The culture that they were in was the Roman and Greek culture. And if you want to see deviancy and sinfulness and wickedness, you look at those historic cultures. So that was not their task. Their task was not social reformation. They did not go about trying to undo some of the social issues of their day. Were there some social issues that were wrong? Yes. Yes. We look at our culture and we say, wow, abortion is such an atrocity. In their day, they didn't just practice abortion. They practiced open infanticide. If you didn't want a child, if you didn't want a baby, you just left it out in the cold and let it die after it was born. The deviancy of the Greek and the Roman culture was far beyond. But their job, they didn't go out and say, hey, we need to get things back to the way they used to be. No, they, that was not their task. Their task was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their goal, their work, gospel, truth is what turned the world upside down and accomplished many of the things that it did. How can we turn the world upside down? I want you to see three thoughts quickly this morning in this text because no matter what the time frame, no matter the culture, no matter the nation, no matter what's going on, these three things are common to the church in every situation. Every time frame, every period, every war, every nation, these three things are the same. And if we want to make a difference in our world, it's not going to be by approaching it through those other avenues. It's not going to be through trying to, to turn back the tide. It is going to be through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation unto all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that was Paul's message. I want you to see this in verses 2 and 3. First of all, we turn the world upside down through the preaching of the gospel the preaching of the gospel. Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them in the synagogue, and three Sabbath days he reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach is Christ. What is Paul's message? It's very simple. Jesus is Christ. He must needs die. It was necessary for him to die for our sins, and he rose from the dead. That's the charisma. That's the, that's the core, the, the message of the gospel. We complicate things in so many ways, but that is what the message is, that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, He's the Messiah, and He's the one that came. And because of our sinfulness, we cannot save ourselves. But Jesus died so that we could be saved, and then He rose from the dead three days later. That's the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. The message that he proclaimed notice his method he said he reasoned with them he argued with them he explained he expounded he opened the scriptures and he showed what the scriptures meant that it pointed to christ his mandate was simply obeying the great commission what is the same thing it's exactly what we do today And it doesn't matter whether you're a Billy Graham preaching to tens of thousands in a crusade in a coliseum or whether you're one person sharing the gospel across a cup of coffee with someone else. It is the same message and the same mandate and the same method. We simply proclaim very simply the message of the gospel and we are being obedient to Christ when we do so. That's what Paul did. You see, it was the gospel that turned the world upside down. The gospel does that today. Today. The gospel turns the religious world upside down because it says it's not do, it's done. Every religion in this world, salvation, heaven, eternal life, is about do, do. You must do this, you must do this. The gospel says it's already done. Jesus Christ has done everything that is necessary. There are people who want to do and Maybe this morning... Maybe you've been trying to achieve salvation and you think, if I can just do more, if I can just accomplish more, if I work harder, if I go to church more, if I put more money in the plate, if I pray longer, if I read more scripture, if I, if I do good deeds, somehow when I get to heaven, there's gonna be this great scale that God's gonna have and he's gonna put my good deeds on one side and my bad deeds on the other and hopefully my good deeds are going to outweigh and God's gonna say, you can come on in. But let me tell you what will happen because the Bible says that all of our good works, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. And if you stood before God's scale, He would put all of your works on one side and you would have no hope of salvation. But when I stand before God and He says, why should I let you into my heaven? I can say because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He has already accomplished what I could never accomplish. He has done what I could not do. I want to tell you there are people in this world that if you told them that you could go out here to 421 and put your nose on that center line and crawl all the way to Dunn and back and you'd get you'd be saved, there are people who would line up to do it because they want to somehow earn their salvation and do something. And the gospel turns that upside down. And the gospel says it's not due, it's done. The gospel turns the world up, the the. The political world upside down, did you see that in this passage? There's not Caesar who's king, there's Jesus who's king. This world wants to look to the power of this world to accomplish things, and the church better never buy into that. It is not political power and authority that's gonna accomplish, it is that Jesus is king. I don't care who's elected president. I don't care who's put into Congress. I don't care who the senators are, who the governor is. Jesus is still the one who looks and rules over all. He's the one who's in control. He's the one in charge. There is not one atom on this world that is not under his authority. Jesus is king, and the message of the gospel turned that world upside down. Look, if we want to make a difference in our world, if we want to turn this world upside down, it's not going to be at the ballot box. It's going to be on our knees in prayer and through the word of God and the proclamation of the message of the gospel. The gospel turns the spiritual world, up, world upside down. It makes the complex as simple. Religion, even Christian religion, not the gospel but Christian religion, makes things complex Jesus says it's very simple. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This morning you may be sitting here thinking, man, there's, I don't know that I understand all this. I don't know. It's just simple. Look and live. Look to Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the simplicity of it let's not make it more complex than it is it is a simple message of the gospel of jesus christ and that turns things upside down because this world and we want to complicate things jesus says it's it's very simple here's the message of the gospel they turn the world upside down and we will turn the world upside down with the message of the gospel the proclamation of the gospel but look in verse 5 and I'm through verse 10 they turn the world upside down because of the perseverance of the messengers. Look at what they endure in this situation. I'm not going to read these verses again, but those who don't, do not believe go out and they find, I love the way the King James puts this, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. I think we probably all know somebody who probably would fit into that category. Certain lewd fellows of a baser sort, and they got them to set the whole city in an uproar. And there's a riot and there's a mob taking place and they've assaulted the house where Paul and the apostles are staying. If if we expect to proclaim the gospel with little or no opposition, then we have missed the preparation of Christ. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. And we have missed the history of the church and its proclamation of the gospel because it has been consistent that there has been opposition. We just happen to live in a place and a time when there seems to be very little opposition to us. And yet when there is, we, we just flake out. I tried to share the gospel with that person, and they got mad at me. I'm sorry that they got mad at you and hurt your little feelings. But let me tell you what I heard about just this week. Missionary in Uganda robbed in their home while they slept. Missionary in Ghana wrongfully arrested. A missionary in Iraq killed by extremists. These are just a few of those and the Christians around the world who are facing great persecution. We've not yet. We face some pressure, but we've not faced persecution. But people, what will happen? What will happen if they take our freedoms and our liberties? The church will continue to do exactly what the church is commissioned to do ever since it started when it didn't have those rights and liberties and freedoms, we proclaimed the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what the greater danger is for us. It's not persecution, it's prosperity. I remember reading a number of years ago about a man who was talking to some Christians from Eastern Europe. This was during the time of the communists and the wall had not yet come down. He told these Christians, he, he was so burdened, he saw and he heard about the pressures and the persecution that they were under, how they couldn't meet in public, they had to meet in secret, they couldn't have Bibles, they were not allowed to own Bibles and all the things. And he wept and he looked at them and he said, I pray for you and the Christians in America pray for you in your persecution. And he said, what those Christians responded to him broke him like nothing he'd ever heard. He said, they looked back at him, and with tears streaming down their face, they said, Oh, brother, we Christians here are praying for you in America in your prosperity. Because the prosperity is a a danger as much or more than the persecution. There are Christians around this world who are facing persecution and things that we can't even imagine. And yet, what do they do? They boldly and faithfully continue to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. That does not change. And what happens when they leave town? Did you see that in verse 10? They went to Berea, and they had a meeting, and they debriefed each other on what they should maybe do differently in Berea, because they didn't want to run into the same persecution. Is that what your Bible says? If it is, you need to get a new Bible, but that's not what it says. Paul went into the synagogue. Same thing, same message, same task, doesn't change. And if the time ever comes by God's grace, if the time ever comes that we lose the liberties and freedoms to proclaim the gospel as freely as we have now, then may God help us to persevere to keep doing what we have been called to do. When it becomes unpopular and even illegal to proclaim a gospel message that is exclusive, that says Jesus is the only way of salvation. When it becomes unpopular to proclaim the word of God and preach that thus saith the Lord, that this is sin and this is righteousness. That does not change simply because we may suffer some repercussions because of it. We continue to do what God has called us to do. And it was the faithful perseverance of the apostles and the faithful perseverance of the early church that had turned the world upside down because they saw them die. They saw them be beaten. They saw Paul go through all that he went through. And he continued to preach the message of the gospel. And there are stories of those who stood in the Colosseum and as they were burned or as wild animals attacked them, they would stand and faithfully proclaim Christ. And as they would die for Christ, there were those who would stand up and begin to profess Christ because of the faithful witness and the perseverance of these believers. They turned the world upside down with the preaching of the gospel. They turned the world upside down with their perseverance on their message and and their mission but there's something in here in this passage that's not given explicitly in this passage, but we find it in Acts chapter 1, and it flows throughout Acts, the entire book of Acts. They turn the world upside down through the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, preacher, that didn't mention the power of the Holy Spirit. Were they proclaiming the gospel? Were they being witnesses in the uttermost parts of the earth? Remember what he said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8? After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You will be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and under the uttermost parts of the earth. And so as you read through the book of Acts, every time you hear the gospel being proclaimed, that is evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit on the person who is proclaiming it. And they are proclaiming the gospel. And I want to tell you that all that we do, here's the the challenge of this. If we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, nothing we do matters. Eternally. Nothing will be accomplished. Nothing, mission trips to Montana, mission trips to New York, our kid life soccer, our CEF good news clubs, our missionaries that we send, our services, our our musical, anything that's proclaiming, that doesn't matter without the power of the Holy Spirit. But here's the encouraging side of that. That anything done for the glory of God and the cause of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit is eternally significant. The power of the Holy Spirit is what makes the difference. What is it that makes the difference in the heart? When Paul's proclaiming and Paul is opening the Scriptures, he's doing so. He's using Spirit-inspired Scriptures. He is a Spirit-filled messenger. And the Holy Spirit takes the truth that he proclaims. And there are some that believe. And there are many that believe. And then there's some of the significant leading women that believe. But then there are those who do not. And in face of all of this, the work that God is doing in establishing the church at Thessalonica that Paul will later write in the 1st and 2nd Thessalonian epistles, and he will encourage them and he will say, I remember when I preached to you, I remember what God did. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit. First Thessalonians, the first chapter, he says, it was in the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit that you believed. And Paul is standing here preaching and the Spirit of God is at work in him. The accounts of this book are the fulfillment of God's, Christ's assurance that the Holy Spirit would come upon His church. And I want to tell you this morning that whether it's this church, or whether it's your family, or whether it's your life, you're not going to make it without the power of the Holy Spirit. But let me tell you this, no matter how poorly we may do it, if the Holy Spirit is on it, we're going to make it. I used to worry myself almost sick when I'd get to share the gospel. But I have learned the more times I share the gospel, the less satisfied I am with my sharing of it. But the more I depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to take what I do, to take what I say. I very frequently, I shared the gospel with someone just a few days ago and was talking with them and just was able to get in just a word about the gospel in a really wild conversation that was all over the place. And I, I, I hung up the phone and I said, God, I could have said that so much better. I should have said something different. And every time I do that, I'm, I feel I could have done, when I preach a sermon or I teach a class or I, I talk to, Lord, I could have done something better. And the Lord reminds me, it's not up to how well you do it anyway. It's up to the power of the Holy Spirit. So don't don't rest in your own strength. Don't quit because you'd think your strength's not enough. Ask God for the power of His Spirit on you. We'll not make it as individual Christians. We'll not make it as a church. We'll not make it in our families apart from His power. But here's the blessed truth of that. God's not holding back the Holy Spirit, giving Him out begrudgingly. He said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much, say it with me, more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who measure up and are worthy enough? Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So here's my question to you this morning. We want to turn the world upside down. We want to make a difference in this world. We want to obey the Great Commission. How are we going to do it? Are you asking for the Holy Spirit to be poured out in your life? Let me tell you what will happen if you do. God will hear and answer that prayer. We have his word. We have his promise on that. They turn the world upside down. Let's turn the world upside down. Let's turn the world upside down with the preaching of the gospel. Let's turn the world upside down with persevering in the face of, per, of obstacles. Let's turn the world upside down by seeking and praying and asking God to be, God. make us hungry. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty for the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you asking for that? Are you praying for that? That will turn the world. That will cause a spiritual revolution and awakening. Father, I pray that you'll speak to us this morning. Make us thirsty, make us hungry for the power of the Holy Spirit. This morning, there may be someone here who's never trusted Christ as their Savior. I want you to know how simple the gospel is. It's simply acknowledging that you're a sinner and you can't save yourself, believing that Jesus died and rose again, just like Paul preached, and then confessing him as your Lord and Savior. If you've never done that I want to invite you this morning to do that I want to invite you to just maybe you can pray right where you are you can step down here to the front one of our pastors would be glad to talk with you about it but please don't leave here today without trusting Christ without receiving the message of the gospel Christians let me ask you this are you thirsty are you hungry for the Holy Spirit in your life do you need the Holy Spirit in your family do you need the Holy Spirit in your marriage we need the Holy Spirit in our church. I want to ask you this morning, God is speaking to you, and you are hungry and thirsty. I want to invite you to come to in this invitation. You can kneel down here. You can just stand at the altar, sit on one of these empty seats, but whatever, wherever you can get, call out to God. God, you've promised, I need the Holy Spirit at work in my life. Father, speak to us, we pray in this moment.